0: This is Joe Long from Hacker Boxes, and today I am excited to be on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Gary Parker. Today we have episode 279 for July 4th, 2022. And hey, happy 4th of July to all those listeners out there from the US of A. I hope you guys are having a fun and safe 4th of July weekend. Now, I am super pumped about today's episode, and before I go any further, if you happen to be a new listener and I have a feeling that because of the <laughs> the nature of this particular episode and, and what is going to coincide with in terms of something that I'll be revealing today, we may get some new listeners. So for the benefit perhaps of the new listeners this is not going to be a normal show. Normally I go back and forth. I alternate each week between doing a news show and then doing an interview show where in both cases I try to bring, you know, the latest information about privacy and security or tap the knowledge of some, you know, industry experts on privacy and security to educate people about what's going on and make sure that people can protect themselves. This show is going to be different, and this is normally where I'd be doing interview show, and it will be an interview, but honestly, it's going to be more of a conversation with me and my partner, Joe Long, uh, from hackerboxes.com. So, Joe and I have been working secretly, feverishly, off and on, on this project for many, many months now. I think it goes all the way back to October of last year. And I have not been able to really talk about it until now. So I'm super excited to finally reveal all of this stuff. <laughs> and I'm gonna draw this out a little bit longer for the big reveal at the end of this interview. So this is gonna be a little bit of a point of personal privilege. I I know you can tell I'm excited. I don't know how excited you guys are gonna be about this, because it's all about hardware hacking and electronics and this subject of entropy and randomness and what that means and why it's so important today, we take it for granted. You know, and some people maybe don't like randomness, they like predictability. But it turns out that in our modern world, especially in terms of cryptography, randomness is really important. And if you get it wrong, things can really go badly. So today's discussion between Joe and I, uh, we're going to, I'm going to try to make this as educational as possible. I, I know I try to say I don't do it from infomercials, but you know, we're going to end up talking about Joe's business because it's part and parcel to what this whole project was about and would be impossible for me to do otherwise on my own. So hopefully you will forgive me. I'll take a little bit of a point of personal privilege so I can talk about this personal project I did. But along the way, I'm still going to try to focus on the educational aspects of this and why I think it's important for people to understand what it means to be a hacker, maybe even discover some latent hacker proclivities that you might have and understand why a little bit of chaos is necessary in our lives today and why computers just suck at randomness. They're very good at doing what we tell them. They're very deterministic, but they really can't think on their own. They can't go outside the box. They can't do something unpredictable. And so we need some ways of injecting real life randomness into computers so that we can get better encrypted communications, for example. So bear with me as we go through this. Some of this stuff is going to sound technical. Some of it's going to sound philosophical. And some of this is obviously just going to be things that I am personally passionate about that you may not share. But I'm asking you to bear with me on this and kind of come along for the ride. And at the very end, we'll finally get to the big reveal of something that uh, Joe and I have been working on together for some time. Something that I'm really excited about. Something that is a product that you can buy, which I, I personally make no money off of and something that if you happen to be going to the DEF CON conference you might be interested in getting. But at the end of the day, it's really just about me working on a fun project with another guy who has a similar passion and how this project embodies what we think are some important concepts. So, with that as a setup, let's get to my conversation with Joe from Hackerboxes where we will finally reveal this thing that I've been teasing for many weeks now. Joe Long is a professional engineer, a patent attorney, and a hardware hacker. He has decades of experience in electronics in which he has taught over a million students around the world. Joe is the founder of Hacker Boxes, a company that provides kits, workshops, and monthly subscription boxes for building and learning electronics. And Joe has also been my partner on a super secret hacker project, which we will reveal at the end of today's interview. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you, Carrie. I'm proud to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to uh, found this company.
0: Oh, well, that's a, a long story. So first there was a big bang. No. <laughs> um, yeah. So I've actually been into electronics my whole life and and then different areas of electronics. I worked in security, secure communications for a while, and uh, I worked as a patent attorney for a while. Um, most of the patents I worked on were related to electronics and computers. And I've also taught quite a bit. I've taught programming and electronics and embedded systems and physics and you know, Hackerbox is, uh, is kind of a company that just came from all of that, came together, and it's a opportunity to make educational products that we um, give to uh, subscribers. We send them out to our subscribers every month, and also we have other workshops and kits and stuff, and we try to make them fun and educational and, you know, just do all the things that we love about electronics and share it with other people.
1: Let's define the term hacker. I, I I always like to ask people in the in the biz and from different areas w- what their definition is. Everyone has a slightly different you know, definition for what they consider to be a hacker. So what is hacking to you? What is the essence of hacking? And then maybe more specifically, what is a hardware hacker?
0: Oh, so that's a great question and that it's uh, it is a really hard question to answer. <laughs> and you'll get different answers from everybody right? and they're all right. They're all right, you know. <laughs> One thing that I often think of is a hacker is someone who wants to do more with less or wants mm. to figure out what something is maybe at its core to see what could be done with it that might not necessarily be what it was offered to you as so Mm -hmm. and you know and that cuts right to the point of the fact that i think it's really important to understand that uh under the heading of there are many types of hackers there are people that use hackers for good what we often call them white hat hackers and people that use uh hacking skills uh nefariously we call them black hat hackers and you know if you're getting right to the core of what something is and what all you can do with it, well, you can do a lot with something. I really like the quote that every tool is also a weapon if you hold it correctly. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, you know, and if if you, if you know some really amazing technology for, let's just say securing uh, passwords and making a computer really secure. So someone has to have a strong password and everything like that. If you understand that you can help users make better passwords and secure them and, have mechanisms for storing and remembering them that are not exploitable. On the other hand, you can also exploit their passwords and mm-hmm. exploit maybe where someone hasn't used a uh, a perfectly secure password. and 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 hacking is just sort of about understanding all of these things, you know, and hopefully applying those skills for good and not evil. but you know it, it, it just like any tool, it's all of those things. it's I do find it interesting, you know in in the hacking world, we often like to say uh, I, I've heard you say this before, hacking is not a crime uh, inherently mm-hmm. just like, you know, a uh, a sword is not necessarily a weapon. It could be a defensive mechanism or a work of art or, you know, um, probably any number of other things. You could probably use it to chop wood and build a house if you wanted to. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, so those are, you know, those are all the issues that come into answering that question. Yeah. What's a hacker, but they're usually really smart, curious people that want to learn about, you know, how, what's at the core of something or what, you know, what else things can do. And, uh, and, and, and so you asked also what what, what is a hardware hacker yes. so that's just a specific type of hacker that likes to play around with hardware so in the computer world you know a lot of stuff is just done by typing things on a, on a keyboard um, and I say jest but the reason why <laughs> is because that's a lot of things right right you know you can program and make websites and database systems and exploit websites and work on AI software but the people that that like to get into like the little the, the hardware and the nuggets and what can I exploit about you know this this antenna or this Wi-Fi chip or this processor or by modifying the voltages, they are doing hardware hacking as opposed to software hacking or network hacking or or social engineering, which is mm-hmm. hacking people. There's right. a lot of different hacking. And so us hardware hackers like to play with electronics. So.
1: You know, hacking is certainly not a crime. And any more than being a lawyer, you could be a good lawyer, you could be a bad lawyer. To be hacking is more like being a, a tinkerer, someone who putzes around with stuff and takes things apart and puts them back together in new and interesting ways or you know takes bits and pieces from a whole bunch of stuff and then turns around and makes something new out of that for me that's what got me into electrical engineering that is when i was a kid and, and i'll be interested to know if you had something similar but when i was a kid i when i ever got any kind of a toy that had anything electric in it whatsoever sometimes even before it finally broke down sometimes i would be the one that would break it first to pull out that led to pull out that little bulb to pull out the little motor the little dc motors and i had my power supply i had a train a train system and what it had this little rheostatic power supply you plug one into the wall and had dc output from these two terminals and so that was my power supply. And I would use that to try to power up these things in new and different ways. And like I used to do models. So I'd, I'd take like a plastic model. I remember I did a Pontiac Fiero. I don't know why I liked the Pontiac Fiero, but I, I took these little rectangular LEDs and I put them where the, the brake lights would go. And I put, I got some little plastic fiber optic and, and and using a hot pin, I put a hole in the dashboard where the turn signals would go so I could put little green turn signals on there. And And that to me was hacking. And that's how I ended up, Basically getting into electrical engineering. Do you have a story like that from your childhood? How did you know you wanted to get into this stuff?
0: There was almost no word in that entire description you gave that didn't apply to me. <laughs> <laughs> I also had a DC train power supply that I used for lots of things. And you know, you mentioned taking the LED out of things. It took me a long time to realize why, you know, something we deal with every day now is LEDs have to have current limiting resistors. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you take you take a nine volt or five volt or even a three volt power supply and just put it on an LED and it's going to burn up. Right. right. And and uh, yeah, I mean, I just love playing around with all those things. And, you know, and you mentioned models, I remember taking a plastic, you know, glued up Tyco glued model of uh, Godzilla and using backlighting to light it up. Mm. But all we had that didn't burn up was 120 volt uh, Christmas lights and i remember you know the causing a problem in my house <laughs> <laughs> and and just doing stuff like that you know and even when i was uh, probably still only about 11 or so i remember my my mom always getting very concerned when i start when i, when I started soldering because mm. i was probably around 11 when i got my first soldering iron from radio shack and i You know, and she was very concerned that I was going to make a fire or melt something, you know, a vinyl floor or or whatever. I don't I don't know exactly what she was thinking other than that, you know, I had to be very careful to not upset my household with my uh, my hardware hacking.
1: (laughs) Yes. Well, that reminds me of another story when I was in college. So I was a double E. I was and so I was, you know, getting into soldering things. And I had my first soldering at some Radio Shack thing. And in my dorm room, I was soldering a circuit together. And the way our desks were, we had Uh, we had AC outlets on the underside uh, of our desk lights. So they were, you know, three, four feet off the ground. And I was down on the, I wasn't at my desk where I should have been. I was in the dorm room in front of my desk. So my, my the cord for my soldering iron went up four feet to my right and I'm soldering down on the ground. And then I lifted it up to look at what I was doing Without see what I was doing. I crossed my own soldering cable with the soldering iron, Mm. melted right through the jacket shorted the wires sparks everywhere and i popped the circuit breaker for our
0: our floor (laughs) wow yeah i mean that that that, that's awesome like those are the kind of things uh we have a a a quote on uh the hackerbox's website because of course we sell things that people solder on and cut on and pop into place and put in backwards and then mm-hmm. write code. And so, you know, if, if you do that and think that it's going to work perfectly every time you're very wrong. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and we actually say you, you should be glad that the, uh, the, the path, to I, I don't remember the exact quote that we crafted on the website, but it's something like, you know, the path to knowledge and electronics is beset on all sides by, you know, sorted out wires and heaps of spaghetti code. And that's, that's how you do it. If you're not breaking things, you're not moving forward. So it's, yeah. Uh, I think that's awesome. That's uh that's what you got to do. And I know it, you know, when I was in college, I think it might've been right when we came back from Christmas break, the part of the physics one class that every freshman took, cause they gave you a big box full of all this stuff, including a soldering iron and stuff to make, tra- you know, spark gap transmitting antennas and make your own AC power supply. And I mean, I don't remember anyone getting hurt, but I remember <laughs> a lot of, uh, oh, let's see, there was a little uh, analog multimeter in there and there was they were broken little multimeters all over our campus because, you know, you fry out those things, especially like if you put them in, you know, what a uh, voltage, voltage measuring mode and run current through them or something like that there, it, it was just great. And people were breaking stuff and learning. And, you know, even the people that were going to uh, be, end up getting a degree in, ge- in geology or chemical engineering, they were playing with these electronics as part of physics. And I thought that was fantastic. And I mean, I'm particularly biased because I love playing with electronics. Right. So it was really cool for me, but and, and I want, I, you know, I want people to do that. That's why I'm so happy that hacker Box has been successful because, uh, you know, we send these kits out and people build and build things and break things and learn things and get really frustrated and upset and then have a breakthrough and then, you know, call with this doesn't work or, and, you know, or, or, email us with, I can't figure this out. And then we give them a hint and they figure it out and they help each other online. And it's just a really wonderful thing to see if you love this stuff, because, you know, everyone has their biases, but my bias is that I love electronics, and I, I, and I love seeing how excited people get when they can control things. You know, like modify and 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 control these things that, like everybody, everybody these days has a smartphone, and it's a beautiful thing and it's super powerful. But you you don't get to like bust it open and solder on it. So <sighs> right. we we
1: attach things to it that you can bust open and solder on. Huh? <laughs> right, right, right. So when I was a kid, I mean, and one of the cool things about the way it is today is you've got this online community you've got so many different places where you can get help when I was a kid I had my you know Radio Shack 101 electronics kit I had a bunch of little paperback books that I got from Radio Shack from Forest Mims which I dearly love in fact I went I, I, I had such a nostalgia for them I, I found somebody on eBay who was selling them and I bought a bunch of them so I have got the old Forest Mims books but today you've got the internet and you've got things like hacker boxes, and when you run into these problems, you can reach out and get help right away, and 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 that is such a big difference from from what I was doing when I was a kid. So it's it's never been a better time to do it. So real quick before we move on, if somebody's interested in this, how how hard is it to do? Like what are we really talking about? First of all, you know, talk about breadboards a little bit because you don't even have to solder necessarily. But you know, how hard is it to solder? And what tools do you need? What basic skills do you need to, to to have to get into this to to toy around with it?
0: Yeah, well, that's a good question. We, you know, that's something that we've thought about uh, here quite a lot because you know we're trying to teach these skills and share these skills. And um, so, um, e- <laughs> just to give like a little aside to that, we've always had a thing with hacker boxes where. You know, uh, what, what, what's a quote I used to use a lot? You know, if it's your first night at Fight Club, you have to fight. And we'd say, yes. if it's your first month with HackerBoxes, you have to solder. Mm. And the point being that HackerBoxes always included soldering because we kind of consider it a... You know, a, a, not really a rite of passage, but it's something you really ought to know how to do, right? Right, yeah. Uh, so we actually changed that in uh, in late 2021 when we released our first workshop that was a soldering-free workshop. Uh, we call it the, the HackerBox Basics Workshop, and it just kind of goes through basic electronics, all using, exactly as you said, solderless breadboards. And so that's really nice. And using that, you can really focus on how does the circuit work, how does the current flow You know, what connects to what, which direction do the diodes have to go, which pins on the four pin button are actually the things that close when I press the button. Like you can focus on those things instead of worrying about, you know, am I making, is the solder too hot? Am I melting this? Am I splashing solder Mm -hmm. on that? Do I have a cold solder joint? Because soldering is a little bit tricky and it's a little bit of an art. Like it's, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, (laughs) I don't mean to imply it's artistic, like sculpting, but it is a manual physical thing that you do sort of like. You know, wielding a, a a paintbrush or working with yeah, a, it's a skill. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a skill that you can. I would argue that you can develop it very quickly, yes. like the basics of it. Yep. So, f- for example, at you'll see these at every, almost every like maker fair or event like that. You'll see a little soldering booth where you can go in and solder an led and a battery on a little PCB and then wear it on your shirt. And they're really cool. And they're usually like staffed by local college students or a local club that charges you five bucks to show you how to do this. And then they use that to fund whatever they're doing. So it's, it's a really cool opportunity if you go to things like maker fair. And I, I think it's been the last six or seven years, they've had a thing at at DEF CON, which is the uh, soldering skills village where you can go in and solder something up really quick. And usually people can pick up the basic skills in frankly like 10 minutes or so if they have someone showing them. And when I say people, I mean, anyone from 10 to 110, like it does not take extreme amount of knowledge or anything like that. And I've made a few videos myself on learning how to solder and so have many other people. There are great uh, how how to learn how to solder videos out there from lots of people. But because this is something we've been concerned with and thought, Wow, we really want people to solder but now that our, we've made our product uh so that you have to solder well that limits our customers and that's we don't want that so we we made a thing called the hackerbox soldering workshop that we have available that comes with a soldering iron some solder wire cutters uh, and, and and a couple instructional videos and then four different projects you mm-hmm. can solder up so someone who is completely new to soldering can learn how to do it and mess around with it whether they want to get that skill so that they can Fix things or build things or whatever you know, and and it's interesting because some people get them that they 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 have no connection to our business. They're building, let's say, you know, model railroad or model drones or something like that, and they just need to be able to solder some connections. So, you know, so we're really proud to offer that because we it's a skill that is is it's not an obvious skill like that. You know, everyone just learns how to solder in school, but it's it's no harder than that,
1: right? It's it's something
0: we could just teach to every. Eighth grader, if we wanted to, it's just not something we generally do. So.
1: Well, one more story, and then we'll move on to the to the next topic. But I, as I was, my kids were growing up. I had two daughters, and uh, I wanted to kind of expose them to these things. And so, what I would have them do, we had electronics around the house that got old, or we were going to give away or donate, and instead, I'd take a couple of these, like for instance, like an old DVD player, and we would take it apart. And I would just set it in front of the girls, and I'd say, "Here's a couple screwdrivers that should work for you. Just start taking it apart." <laughs> take the cover, you know, and so they'd look around, find where the screws were, find the, the right, you know, size screwdriver, start taking the, taking them out and pulling things off. And as we go through it, I'd explain, okay, here's what this is. That's what this motor is. See this thing right here. That's the laser that's actually reading the the disc as it as it's spinning around on this DC motor that's in there. And, you know, this is the backside of that display that's in the front and here's the buttons and here's the wires that come from those buttons. And, you know, it was just a great learning experience. It, it, it was a lot of the same stuff I did when I was a kid and and one of the one of the discoveries I made as a kid and is that, for example, a speaker can be a microphone because all it is a microphone and a speaker are really just transducers and and they take sound pressure and turning it into electricity or vice versa. And I, I think I did it by accident. I think I was messing with a microphone and messing with a speaker and I think I hooked it up backwards. And I'm like, wait a minute that speaker just acted like a mic. And so anyway, those are just, you know, those are some of the fun experiences I had growing up. And I tried to, you know, expose my daughters to some of that as they grew up.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, I, I, I have three little kids and I do that sort of stuff with them. In fact, I've showed them how, because they, they, they do Lego robotics and I've showed mm. them how, you know, the Lego motor is also a generator. Right. And you can you can put electricity into the motor and it spins and then couple that with a gear to another motor, it spins that motor and then electricity comes out of the other side. And, and, and that's fascinating, right? It show, shows in a way the conservation of energy and it shows how you know all of these things that seem complicated often break down to something simple and that the basic principles that make one thing work
1: often are the same things that make many other things work. So, yeah, and I guess that's the engineer in me too. I mean, and you know, and obviously we're birds of a feather here. And I'm not sure how much of the audience will agree with this, but I mean that that discovery and figuring those things out and actually seeing it and applying it myself is what really just thrills me. That's why I'm an engineer. So I guess that's not surprising,
0: right? And that and that uh, circling back, that's the perfect answer to the what is a hacker? I mean, if you're passionate about that stuff and love finding that and want to show it to other people and use it to do something new, that's hacking in in, in my book.
1: Yeah. So. All right, so let's transition a little bit to a seemingly unrelated topic, but we're gonna bring them all back together at the end. I want to tap your physics brain now because I know you've got physics experience. Let's talk about the term entropy. What does that mean? Where does that come from? And maybe how does how do we see entropy in our daily lives?
0: Okay, well, um entropy from the um from the world of physics, uh, it's encapsulated in the uh, the second law of thermodynamics. Which basically says in a closed system entropy will always increase, and and then you can replace that word entropy with just to make it really simple disorder. Um, in other words, if you have a system that has no energy going into it, the disorder in that system should always increase. Um, and you know, an example a lot of people use is. In in this universe, we have a lot of things that break. We don't really have any things that <laughs> spontaneously reform. No uh, no teacup has ever fallen from you know shards of ceramic and formed into a teacup, right? Right. But teacups break every day, um, unfortunately. So that's really what entropy boils down to. Is entropy is a measure of disorder in in a system in a thermodynamic system, and entropy will always increase. So so then you're like, well, what's a, what do you mean by thermodynamic system? What are you talking about? Well, one way to think about it is if you put you know let's say you have a big uh, chamber like think about like a fish tank or something mm-hmm. and you put you know 10 atoms in there 10 uh, 10 molecules of nitrogen they are not all just going to sit up in the left corner all hugging each other <laughs> they're going to spread out as far as they can and and you know it, it's sort of an, an, another way of saying nature abhors a vacuum right mm. it's going to things are going to spread out they're going to become very disordered they're going to they're they're going to break apart they're going to they're going to seek their kind of their 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 simplest lowest State of existence over over time, right? Mm. And, and hopefully that answers answers the question. I realize it might be a difficult thing to visualize, and it actually comes down to so thermodynamics. We also sometimes call it statistical me- mechanics because it kind of boils down to statistics. What what likelihood is that something's going to be in some certain state, or that there's going to be what you know, uh, how many numbers of things in some certain place, and the statistics of that are going to favor things being broken down and spread out, right? The, the disorder, disorder. Yes. So that's kind of the physics notion of entropy is that things left on their own will become more and more disordered. And another way to look at it is any sort of reaction or phenomena that tends to increase disorder will tend to be more spontaneous, right? So in in, phys- in physics and chemistry and sci- physical sciences in general, we we ask the question, will this happen spontaneously or do we have to power it? Right, mm. and things will happen spontaneously that that become more disordered. In in other words, have an increase in entropy. So entropy is a mechanism for measuring that disorder.
1: Another maybe pseudo synonym for for this would be randomness. Randomness in our world today, and we actually need randomness in in some situations. Which we're going to talk about in a minute. But like for example, it's when we think of noise uh, we think if you there's actually there's actually in electrical engineering, certainly, and I, I'm sure in physics as well, there there's an actual mathematical notion uh, of what it means to be noise. In fact, if you've ever heard the term white noise, that's and wondered why we called noise white. It's because there are probability distributions. That is, if you look on a timeline of all the possible values of something, just think of a coin. So the po- the possible values of a coin are heads or tails. And a true, A truly symmetric coin, if you flip it a billion times, will come out, you know, half of those will be heads and half of those be tails. If it's a trick coin, if it's weighted, if it's not quite right, you might get a skew. And so that is that is a non flat. Distribution, or if you had a die that, like a twenty-sided die, and you're rolling it, and it was loaded, it's not a real die; it was loaded to always come up twenty or come up twenty a lot more often than normal. Instead of seeing a flat distribution, if you plotted all the possible values and you did it a billion times, it should, you know, every value from one to twenty should be roughly flat. That's what we mean when we say like white noise, right? We talk about bell curves. So these are all things that that we see in in real life today. When I say that to you, what what do you think about in terms of in the real world how we 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 notice noise and randomness in in our everyday lives. Pretty much
0: anything that you can measure, which everything we do all the time is measuring when we're looking at something or hearing something, we're measuring it. Or if we use a tool to measure it, like a voltmeter or something like that, we're constantly measuring things and you cannot, you can never know anything perfectly, right? Even when we, when an electrical engineer measures a voltage and we're like, oh, this, this, uh, Voltage on my USB port on your computer is supposed to be five volts. It's five volts nominal. It's never 5.000 volts, never. Right. It just doesn't happen, right? And even if it were 5.00, it's not 5.000000. 000, 000, there's always some difference. And often it's like 4.7, mm-hmm. you know. And, and when someone's first working in electronics, they will say, Well, what's up with that? And we'll say, you know, and, and then a more experienced engineer will say, No, that's five volts. And they'll go, No, it's not. Like, okay, it's not five <laughs> volts to an accountant. But to right, a electrical right. engineer, anything over you know, depending on what type of system you're working with, anything over four point six volts and less than five point four volts might be five volts. It's nominally five volts, right? Right. And and, and I'm and I'm even thinking recently, I uh, I was uh, looking at the spec for a fifty gallon water heater, and it said nominal 50 gallon. And then in parentheses, 47.6 gallons. Right now. And and you see these things in engineering specs all the time that nothing is exactly because everything has a little bit of noise to it. Right. You can never measure anything exactly. You can never really know anything exactly. There's always a little bit of uncertainty. Right. And a lot of modern systems, be they communication systems, political systems, economic systems are built in to mitigate that uncertainty that, you know, that thing when I say, oh, I'm going to wire you Eight hundred dollars. That the fact that it's not going to be exactly eight hundred dollars if there's a, you know, a foreign currency exchange rate in there mm. or something like that. Then there's you know there's financial mechanisms for mitigating that. There's electronic mechanisms for dealing with the fact that your USB port might have four point seven volts on it. And this noise is everywhere, and we're always dealing with it. And, and you know, and it's important. And it has these almost like philosophical corollaries to every aspect of life that we can't really know everything perfectly. And that you know, if you get all the way down to quantum mechanics, knowing things perfectly, or or, or I guess I should say the Heisenberg uncertainty concept, knowing everything perfectly is it's, it's a,
1: it's a misnomer. There is no such Mm -hmm. thing. Right. So let's move this to the world of cryptography. Why is entropy or randomness so important when we're talking about cryptographic algorithms?
0: I often like to explain where Information entropy or or you know, which is a mechanism for measuring noise or uncertainty or surprise or whatever word you like using for that, mm-hmm. where that comes into security. I like to often start by just making the example. What's a better password? Capital D, capital O, capital G, dog, or is a better password six nine W pound sign? Right. Right. And well, one of them is noisier than the other, it doesn't have an inherent pattern. It's, you know, and, and and everyone has encountered this nowadays. You enter a new password for your banking software, let's say, and you try to put in, I like fish. It's not going to accept that. It's going <laughs> to say, shouldn't. I want different. Yeah, I want, I want more letters. I want different capitalizations. I want symbols. I want numbers. And that's good because ma- that's making a more random password. And an ideal password would just be garbage, right? It would just right. be garbage. Well, be garbage to anyone else. Like there are tricks if you need to memorize your passwords, which, you know, those of us in the security industry will advise against. But if you really want to remember your passwords, there are these tricks, like make a sentence or a line from a poem or a song and only use every other, every other first letter. And then, right. you know, scramble the capitalization and then replace anything that looks like a number, like the letter E with the number three right. and things like that. It just makes it more random. And it's because it's more secure because it's hard to guess because it's a
1: surprise. It's uncertain. It's noisy. Right. And in fact, when you when you encrypt something, when you take some what they call clear text, the plain text, when you take the thing that you want to encrypt, the thing that can be read by humans and then encrypt it such that the output is unintelligible. When you do that right, when you've got the right cryptographic algorithm when you when you've got good randomness uh, as an input to that algorithm and you've got a good key, the output is often referred to as indistinguishable from noise in that there is no obvious pattern. You can't discern what the input was given the output because that's kind of the point of cryptography. It's to scramble it to the point where you can't tell, but if you have the right key, you can then decrypt it and get the original plain text back out.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, maybe if I could segue, how do you get a good key? <laughs>
1: Right. Well, and you talked a little bit about that with your with your passwords and the keys and passwords are, are related there. Passwords typically are things that humans input where keys are often things that are maybe derived from passwords uh, or are perhaps are even generated by you know, a password manager or, a, or, or some sort of cryptographic algorithm uh, that you want to be as random as possible. And it also turns out that in a lot of cryptographic algorithms. Under the covers, they need as another input a non-human input, a seed or some sort of a random value to kind of prime the pump of the algorithm, and that needs to be a truly random number. And it turns out that it's not as easy as you would think. Computers do a lot of things very well, but they they do what you tell them. That's kind of the whole point. And so when you want a computer to say, "Okay, we'll give me a random number." it's got what we call a pseudo random number generator often is what what's used it why don't you explain what is a pseudo random number generator and and how is it not really random why is it pseudo as you just said everything that a computer does is is what to you know to use
0: a term we use in in physics for this sort of thing it's the computer is deterministic Hmm. it'll do exactly what you tell it to do is what you just said if you have an algorithm that's going to Spew out some numbers that look a little nutty or, or, or don't seem to have any pattern to them. The computer can only do it because you've told it how to do it, right? <laughs> right. So the computer has to start somewhere. So because these this chain of numbers that it creates that that look randomish are never actually truly random. In other words, if whatever it is that that random generator is based on, if it starts with the same initial conditions on two separate computers, it will come up with the same sequence of random numbers. Mm-hmm. That's not random, that's not good. Or it's it's not secure, it's not random. That's um We don't want to use that as a basis for cryptography or security. So we want to seed that chain, which means give it its initial conditions where it starts from with something that is truly random in a physical sense. And, you know, a very simple example of that would be rolling a die or flipping a coin. Well, you know, your computer doesn't have an arm <laughs> and it doesn't have a die and it doesn't have a coin. So right. it can't right. do that. So, you know, you need your computer to have something that's that takes that pseudo random uh, function, which is just making make you know basically making a chain of things that aren't really related, but starts it off in a different place, right? So we seed it and often in hardware, we seed things by reading something from nature. Um, and nature could be the user. So if it's a regular computer, it could be where they've moved the mouse, how frequently mm-hmm. they move the mouse. I believe, you know, slot machines, I don't know that they do this anymore. I think they've come up with better techniques, but it used to be the timing between the pull of the, of the handle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it would just time things that the user was doing because those things are far more random. The motions of a human are fairly random or they have a lot of noise inherent on the tails of their measurement. Meaning, you know, if I measure where you're sitting down to the millimeter, you're bouncing around a lot, even if you're sitting <laughs> still, Right. right. So if you take these physical quantities and use that as the starting input, as the initial conditions for the you know the pseudo random number generator, you will get much better randomness out of that because you're just starting from an unknown place and then moving and in, moving in a potentially unknown way. And the more of this actual physical randomness, this real real physical noise. We can say that it's far more real than the noise a computer can make because computers only do what you teach, what, what you've instructed them to do. But it's still, you know, there's still always this question of, well, how random is that, right? And that's something that that I know you've been working with recently is how, you know, how random is, if, you know, if I'm, if I'm getting randomness by measuring, you know, the, the ambient light around me or by measuring motion of a mouse, Is that really random? You know, what if someone moves the mouse in the same way every day at that time? And what if the light in that room is kind of in the same range? Because, you know, humans like light of a certain brightness. Well, you got to go down to the tail and find and find the noise. And, you know, there's a little bit of an
1: art to that. But what we want to do is get this noise into the computer, get things that are really random. Right. And so these, pseudo exactly. So you said these pseudo random number generators, the reason they're called pseudo random number generators is because. They will spit out a sequence of numbers that, if you plotted them on the graph, like we kind of talked about earlier, if you plot enough of them, it's going to look pretty flat. Like between the minimum and the maximum value, it's got every value in between is kind of equally likely. And so that might look random. But as you said, they all require some sort of a seed because these these algorithms are predictable. They're deterministic. So <laughs> it might sound like a contradiction in terms. But they are they are both random and deterministic at the same time. And what you need to do is give it this special, truly random seed to to kick it off, so that it kind of starts its sequence somewhere in the middle that you wouldn't know because it's based on on an input you wouldn't know. And then you also talked about, and this is we want to dig a little further in this, and this comes back to the the noise concept. You know, what's a computer to do if you tell it if you tell the computer to do something to give you a random number and you want it to be truly random and unpredictable? You need to give it something. You need you need to prime it uh, with some sort of uh, seed value, some sort of truly random value. And so you could look at things like temperature sensors, for example. But as you said, the temperature, if I just read the temperature now and then I read it five minutes from now in my room, it's probably the same temperature. Unless I open a window or my house starts on fire, <laughs> You know, the, the temperature where I'm sitting right now is not going to change much. But as you said, if you start looking at the really low significant digits, if I, if I get the temperature value down to six digits beyond the decimal, you know, 73.14579, I, I, I didn't count those, but l- the last few digits of those, now I'm going to start seeing noise, like there's electronic noise in the sensor, there's slight variations in temperature that are actually going on. But if you just look, if you like forget the top part, if you just look at the bottom part, you can start to see something noisy and that starts to get random. What other what other kind of sensors might we like in electronics? What are other kind of things might we measure that we could kind of look at that tail end as you talked about? What are some other ways that we might derive randomness from just regular everyday measurements?
0: Yeah. Well, just, just like we can do with that, that thermal example you made, we can also measure like the ambient light in a room. And if you, you know, and again, with, with those type of measurements, you have to kind of go, go down to the, to the, to the small fractions of whatever the unit you're measuring, because it's going to more or less be the same, right? Most rooms you walk in are going to have a, you know, none of them are going to be as bright as the sun and none of them are going to be as, you know, as dark as the, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the backside of Pluto, but (laughs) They're going to have a a little range that they vary over. But if if you go down like a couple more significant figures, you can get a couple more places in the measurement. You can get a measurement that looks a little noisier. And you can do that with a lot of sensors, like you can do it with light sensors, thermal sensors. Um, If it's something that moves around, like something a human touches, you can do it with motion. Uh, And with motion, it can be its acceleration, its position, its rotation, things like that. And then um, a really interesting thing that's used in electronics a lot is a thing called like um, semiconductor shot noise. Mm -hmm. So there's a noisiness inside a semiconductor that you can actually measure and capture if you make the right kind of circuit. And there's a noise that's inherent in that. And one could argue that a, a component of those other things, if you're talking about an electronic sensor that senses temperature or light, a component of that already is uh, electronic shot noise just because you're using an right. electronic sensor. So, yeah, so you're getting right down to the, you know, to the physical operation of something and just picking up noise about it. And it's it, that type of stuff is very hard to repeat. So it becomes very non-deterministic. It's still statistical you know, it's still, if you measured it, you could see, oh, look, it has the statistical distribution. So you might have to, you use the term before white noise, meaning all outcomes are statistically equally likely. You can whiten noise. So if something is more likely to have, you know, a certain outcome than another, and it's a, it's a functional distribution, you can multiply the inverse of that function by the, by the thing you're measuring to get something that's, that's Mm -hmm. whiter, like you can whiten noise, you know, and also if, if a part of a measurement isn't as noisy you can just opt to not use that so you know you can use little engineering tricks to, to maximize the amount of noise you're getting from a physical process a physical uh sensor or measurement
1: to bring this all back to something more more practical and a little more, little less abstract these algorithms the, the things we use every day to, to to get on the internet to talk to our bank to send private messages to people all these things are backed by encryption and if that encryption is not done properly then bad actors can take that encrypted data and figure out what it actually is. And one of the things that a lot of people don't think about that goes into that that's important is randomness, is entropy. So these algorithms require true random inputs. And where I've seen this fail in real life was two cases I can think of. One of them, there was a case where some secret keys that were being generated by a computer to do encrypted communications were all based on when the computer started. Whenever you boot your computer, there's a time. You can always go and look and see how long your computer's been up since your last reboot. That value is stored in the, in the, in the system. And so it said, well, that seems random enough. You know, If I, if I just use that as my seed to the date and time of, of when I started, then that's random. But the bad guys figured out that these systems were using that value. And then that value is easy to determine from the system. So once you hack into the system, if you can see when it came up, or even if you can predict pretty closely to when that computer came up, you can start to guess the outputs of the pseudo random number generators and then you could actually use that to break the encryption for uh, things that happen on the device. And another way I saw this fail was when you're when you're doing this entropy you actually kind of need a what we call a pool of entropy you need to build up not just one random value you need to build up a bunch of these things because as your computer is talking to the the web it's generating these keys under the covers left and right like it, every you know in milliseconds perhaps it's it's generating tons of these secret values and needs more random input and another case i saw was where This entropy pool was starting to build up it was it was finding random values in the system through various means and and pooling this entropy into a list. But the demands for that list were so high that it exhausted the list. And what the software programmers didn't do when they were programming against this was checking to see if the pool of entropy was empty. And because they weren't checking that when the pool got empty, whenever you asked for give me that next random value, it would just give you a zero. Every time, which is not random. And again, the bad guys figured this out, caused the system to exhaust the pool of entropy so that now going forward, it knew that it was giving out zeros every time and then could therefore break the encryption. All right. So that that's that's what that means in real life. One more thing I want to talk about, because I think it's just interesting, is that when we talk about entropy and finding patterns and things, the flip side of encoding things. If we can find patterns in things, we can take something that looks really kind of crazier or, or hard to describe and distill it down to its essence and make it much easier. And what I mean by that is like, for instance, when we're compressing something, the difference between like a, a JPEG of an image or a vector diagram of an image can be huge. If I have a white background with a black circle, and I'm turn that into a JPEG. What I'm effectively doing is I'm as I'm going through and I'm saying, okay, I need to describe what this image looks like in a digital way so that it can be reproduced later. So, if it's a thousand by a thousand, and somewhere in the middle of there is a black circle, I, I'm going to go line by line. Well, there's a, a hundred lines of white. There's another hundred pixels of white. There's another hundred pixels of white. Oh, here's almost a hundred pixels, but that one in the middle there, that one's black. And then I keep doing that for every line, and I did describe every pixel in that thing. Well, that takes a lot of data. But if I just describe that as well. Draw, draw a circle with a radius of a thousand. That is encoding that circle in something much better than actually going through pixel by pixel and describing it. And you had, we were talking about this before, you had, you had another interesting way of looking at this with PDFs, <laughs> with, with PDF files. Why don't you relay that one to us?
0: Oh, right. So um, <laughs> when I um, moved from the engineering world into the legal world, we you know we deal with a lot of uh, a lot of documents. And I noticed that People that work with purely with documents and lots of documents at a very professional level, when we convert them to PDFs, they would always scan them. So they always went through the same <laughs> scanning machine and everything. Like that, and I and I I started pointing out to people, um, you know, legal secretaries and other lawyers, you know, it's a lot better if you just print the 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 Word file to a PDF because now the PDF file contains put the letter R here. It doesn't contain a picture of the letter R mm. for every R. It doesn't repeat the image and then you know not only the picture of an R but a noisy picture of an R because at, when you scan a document, you don't get the perfect. Right. Pixel by pixel representation that you would have originally had. And, you know, and there's a lot more uh, useful information in in a list of characters as opposed to a bunch of pictures of characters. Not only is it more efficient to store, but, you know, the the data is more meaningful. You can do a text copy out of it, for example, or search it. And, you know, and of course, the people that make PDF uh, technology, you know, particularly Adobe and, you know, other other companies, Uh, lots of open source software have come up with tools for this, where, you know, when you scan in a document to convert it back into text, using a technique called OCR, optical character recognition. But it's really interesting that, you know, this is a really good example of where people don't, didn't necessarily, you know, really smart people that work with documents all the time. We're not slowing down to think what, (laughs) what is, how is this data represented and what does that mean for its, for its usability, its reusability, its security, its Efficiency, it's you know, it's it's reprintable quality, you know, and and a lot of the stuff, it just kind of permeates the world of information engineering. I mean, for example, the reason why, or, or a very excellent reason why we started storing information such as let's just say audio and video digitally, is you can reproduce it. You know, much of the chagrin of record companies and such, (laughs) you can reproduce it infinitely with perfect fidelity because a one or a zero is always a one or a zero. It doesn't degrade over time or by number of copies. A really uh, far more excellent reason that I didn't realize until I I, I did uh, more work deeply in security is it is much more easy to secure from a cryptographic perspective. You know, you can secure an analog message by trying to add like noise floors to it and things they used to make cable TV channels. Yeah. Un- inaccessible yeah. back right. in the analog days. But the way we do it now with cryptographic keys is just far more powerful. And it does it you know without adding noise. It does it without degrading the signal at all. So you know going to a digital world makes things concrete and deterministic from a, and I don't mean that from a statistical sense, but I mean it from the sense of a one is always a one and a zero is always a zero. We don't have to worry about if a little noise got added to it. It, it just makes things work better. But now we have to secure things in a very different way. And we do that cryptographically uh, for the most part. And that type of cryptography requires, you know, nice random numbers, lots of entropy and understanding of entropy and understanding of, you know, just simple things like if I scan a paper printout of a document versus printing it to a PDF file, I'm going to get a different outcome, a different experience of how that information is represented. Even if at the at the furthest level, if you just print both of those back out on the paper, they more or less look the same, but it's very different inside of in what you can do with it and what it means. And right. you know, and that's uh that and that's the type of stuff that it's it's important for even even people that are, you know, maybe not super technology oriented, maybe you know, people that are in the medical field or the legal field or you know, just doing uh, commerce in the in the modern world, understand these security issues. And, and that's why, you know, that's why I guess in a way, why you know you and I are excited about these things we're excited about because <laughs> we want to get this stuff that kind of us engineers kind of you know even if we don't just take it for granted we understand it we need to get everyone understanding it right
1: right <laughs> okay so all of this leads up to the project that you and i've been working on for what since november october or something uh of last year and so we met you and i met at uh, defcon last year defcon 29 my first foray to defcon how many times have you've been to defcon at this point
0: um i think about eight okay seven or eight yeah
1: and I saw your HackerBox booth, and I thought yeah, that's really cool. And you know, I really enjoyed my DEFCON experience, and I thought, oh, I want to, I want to kick it up a notch for next year. I want to do something different. I want to add to the experience somehow, more than just attending. And I, one of the things that I learned at DEFCON was to have this whole notion of what we call badge life. And because if you've ever been to a conference, they give you a nice little paper thing that you hang around your neck on a lanyard and it's got your name and your company and whatever. But somewhere along the line, because it's a hacking conference, DEF CON started making their badges electronic. And then they really got electronic. Like they were full on computers built into the badge doing amazing stuff. And it's become this whole hacking thing. I talked about it all last year, so I'm not going to go into much this year. But I thought, okay, what if you know, what if I could come up with my own badge and that would be a fun kind of a project. I'm a, you know, I'm a E by degree and I've always wanted to do some, you know, I wanted to get back into my electronic hacking and I had signed up for your hacker boxes. So I was starting to get those and I was smelling the flux and the solder and I was like really getting off on that. And I thought, you know what, if I was going to do this, the person who would know best how, how to counsel me to try to do something on this level would be the guy who runs hacker boxes. So I reached out to you and you, I think it was October last year, and started asking you questions like, okay, if I, if I wanted to put together a badge for DEF CON, if I wanted to, you know, mint my own thing with my own custom printed circuit boards and stuff, how hard is that to do? What do I need to do? And and why don't, why don't you pick up the story from there? Tell the audience from your perspective, what you recall about that conversation and how we came to the conclusion <laughs> that we wanted to partner up.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I was very excited because I, you know, I love when people love the things I love and I want to help them learn more about them. So I I think my, my initial uh, reaction was, Oh, sure. I'll, you know, I'll help you with that. I'll answer any questions you have about using, you know, KiCat or some other hardware design, how to find what kind of parts you should use, you know, how to, how to pick a microprocessor and, you know, it, just all, all the little details that go into making one of these little um, embedded systems that we, uh, we excitedly call a, Indie badges or badge life or or what or what have you and and so I was excited about that and then as we started talking about it I think um, you had actually suggested I I don't recall even which one of us brought it up that maybe we could make it a hacker box like maybe mm-hmm. and you know and I had pointed out to you that we've done badges before for hacker box. of course when we do a badge it has to be a kit right because our mm-hmm. our users have to build it and learn about building electronics from it we don't just give you Completed badge, which you know, most indie badges are not kits. In fact, I I I don't think really any of them are other than the ones we've made. There might be one or two, but because you know, usually someone gets one of these badges and they want to wear it at DEF CON. And so it's got to be done. Well, our ours are not done, they're (laughs) kits. And and so I had just assumed that wasn't what you wanted to do, since that's kind of an outlier. And then you were like, Oh no, that would be cool. Let's, you know, maybe we could design one that would become a hacker box so you know we looked at the timing and the the hacker box that's coming out right now that's that will be like basically the the last one that comes out with enough time before defcon that people can get it and build it that will make that our our badge and then i think that that's where you suggested um you had already had the idea for the amulet concept i, I don't know if you want to yes explain that since it was your idea maybe uh yeah, let us know about
1: that. yeah so i i can't remember now I, i've got notes i'll need to go back and look at like some of my journals and stuff and how i came about thinking of this concept but I thought I was thinking about random numbers in fact it, I bet you money I had seen one of these stories that I just relayed to you about how entropy had fallen apart and someone and someone had blown it and not used it and I thought well so how do we get entropy and I thought, you know what if i created a badge that generated entropy from some common sensors and she won't kind of call it you know and so you know firewalls don't stop dragons right so obviously into fantasy stuff i'm into D- dungeons and dragons stuff so i thought okay well how do i make it fit that concept all so that well what about an amulet of entropy and then that just Naming it just gave it all sorts of things, you know, all sorts of things started popping to mind. I want to have dragons on it. I want to have, you know, blinky LEDs, you know, and and I want to have maybe gems on it. And and now we've got this notion of chaos, this randomness concept that's, that's in there. And so uh, as we, you and I were talking about that, and I was uh, describing that to you. I remember you saying that you had, you know, you have a physics background. And you actually have some, some uh, personal interest in entropy, which kind of blew my mind. Like, what are the chances? Right. I mean, as we're discussing, I think we both kind of reached this conclusion as we were talking at the same time. We should do this together. And then the fact that I mean, I love the hacker boxes because they're just fun to put together. But I, I also am an educator and I try to help people understand what's really behind these things. So they understand, you know, why these things are important. And so it just, to me, it was just a perfect marriage. And I, and so we talked about it then and then, and we planned it out. And so now we have, or after much, much designing, I did a lot of work with some artists to, to get the, the printed circuit board design. You of course did all the hardware design, maybe just real briefly. I don't want to make this a total infomercial, but like <laughs> walk through from your perspective, what the process was to getting the, 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 badge ready to deploy.
0: Yeah. So we, um, you know, you and I were talking about this and we um, talked about having multiple sources of entropy on the badge, which, you know, I was really excited about that because I was like, well, that means different types of hardware that, you know, someone who builds our badge gets to play with and different types of circuitry they can build and test and see what they do. And I think we kind of narrowed it down to four Entropy sources, noise sources, and they are one of them is there's a there's a motion sensor that that actually Mm -hmm. has a gyroscope and accelerometer. So it gets a lot of position and rotational data. So that's great. We have a little temperature sensor and then we have a light sensor that measures the ambient light. And then we have a little shot noise circuit that has some transistors. And the way that one of the transistors is set up, you're basically measuring the noise on the on the uh, on one of the junctions in that transistor. And all four of those noise sources then go into a microprocessor. You know, and then you and I had to deal with supply chain issues because <laughs> <Yeah>. right now <laughs> there are there are just problems getting different microprocessors. Right. And the first one we wanted to use wasn't available, uh, wasn't going to be available in enough quantity. And then the next one didn't have enough I/O pins. And then we finally settled on uh, on the the chip that's the basis of the Raspberry Pi Pico. It's the RP twenty forty microcontroller, which is really cool. It's it's an ARM core. Arm is becoming uh, sort of ubiquitous. Even yeah, the new Apple uh, right. Apple chips are are Arm based, right? All of us have Arm chips in our phones. I don't think there are any smartphones these days that don't have Arm chips in them. I could be wrong, but they basically all do. And so it's a little it's a little Arm processor. It's pretty powerful, and it takes these four noise sources, and then we coupled it up with a circular full color display, like would be on like an Apple Watch, like a mm. or or one of these athletic watches. And so that's a really cool display and lots of colorful lights and some buttons for inputs and. You know, and we just prototyped it and messed around with it and went through all the process of just making the initial circuits, making sure they kind of worked, and then we put it on a PCB. And I think you have one of the first PCBs you've been <laughs> yes. writing a bunch of cool code for. Yeah, and it's just been it's a it's a pretty cool process. And this is not unlike the process that is used in industry when you know a company decides you know what a uh, company that makes uh, routers or set top boxes decides we want to make another one of these, or a company that makes a a smartphone or a burglar alarm or that, you know, the ring doorbell is like, we want to make one of these. You just go through this whole process of analyzing what your requirements are, what the available technology is. And then you start making prototypes and then you build a you know, a more like a final prototype and then you get the final PCBs and then they don't work and you get another version. <laughs> and then, you know, the, then, then the software people jump in and start writing all the code for it. And it is a really fun process. And depending on how much complexity is built into your, the concept you're doing, this can take anywhere from, you know, it took us about six months. I mean, not that we were working on it full time right. during then, but it can take anywhere from six months to several years, depending on, you know, how complex these things are. And, uh, and it, it is a really fun process and I, you know, I'm glad we got to work on it together and these final badges look really cool. And I think people are going to enjoy them. And of course they're a badge kit. So, you know, whoever gets them has to, has to solder them up. And, right. you know, that, that's part of the fun for us is, you know, we've actually included some in with the kit, some cool soldering tool, some, you know, some uh, um, flux gel and some really tiny tweezers and things like that. So to help people, you know, up their soldering game and then, you know, also up their coding game and their microprocessor game and, you know and then in the end make
1: something that looks cool that does something fun hopefully so <laughs> well speaking of doing something fun so as we as we record this i am still writing the software furiously <laughs> for, for for this device and what i in my head, what I wanted to do was like, okay, well, what are some fun things that you could do with randomness? What, you know, what do you think of randomness? What do you think of? And well, flipping a coin is an obvious one, you know, picking a card from a deck of cards, um, maybe a roulette wheel, because we will be in Vegas for Defcon for this. So that a lot of randomness going on there. Then I thought, you know, how about the old magic eight ball? And you know, where you it had that little thing where it had the little clear glass or plastic window in it with this little die inside that you kind of shake up and you turn up, and then it floats to the top and gives you, you know, answer cloudy, ask again later, or whatever, whatever the classic things are. So I'm furiously now trying to add different modes to this device with with the buttons so that you can on this little round screen in the middle bring up, you know, one of these modes, you know, flip a coin mode or pick a card mode or do an eight magic eight ball uh, mode or do a roulette wheel thing. And so those are the things that I'm going to be part of the badge and use the buttons on the side to, you know, choose your mode and then, you know, have you give it a random value. And so that's what this badge is going to be. So how do we how do if somebody was curious in this badge, how would they get a hold of one?
0: Um, well, we will have them on um, our website, hackerboxes.com. Uh, they'll be under past Hacker boxes. Uh, hack- is those Hacker box number year eighty zero zero eight zero? And then um, you can order one from there, and we'll ship it right to your house, free free shipping in the United States. Or if you um uh, are gonna be at DEFCON, we will have some number of them there. However many we have the week before DEFCON, we will send them to DEFCON, and we will be selling those there. So if you're at DEFCON, come by the vendor room um to the Hacker boxes table, and we'll have one there for you. If you are out there, you know, in, in, uh, on the internet, in the, um, cyberspace, uh, jump on hackerboxes.com and you can buy one there.
1: All right, Joe, that's going to wrap it up. Thank you so much for partnering with me on this. It was so fun. Uh, cannot wait to see these, uh, to get my personal hacker box in my <laughs> mailbox and to see these on sale at Defcon and just wear it around the, the con. It's gonna be a lot of fun. It's been a great process. You've been a, a wonderful partner with this and it was been so much fun. Uh, and so, and thanks for coming on the show to tell us all about it.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: So there you have it. I can finally reveal what I've been working on all this time. I had to kind of keep it under wraps and keep it secret. And it's been killing me. (laughs) But as you could probably tell, I've been wanting to tell you guys about this for a long time. And I realize this is just a personal project. So again, thank you for bearing with me on this and for letting me Talk about this project that I worked on with Joe. Uh, and, And so just to be clear, what this project is, is it's an electronics project, something that if you want to have one, you actually have to build it. You actually have to do some soldering. And by the way, this. This particular project will take some pretty good soldering skills because there's a lot of really tiny, tiny parts, some surface mount device parts, and that is kind of hard to do uh, whether it's standard soldering iron. I haven't even built mine yet. I should be getting mine in the mail. I'm a subscriber. I should be getting my version of this in the mail today like everybody else. Uh, And as soon as I get it, you know, I'll be cracking that open and and soldering it up. And by the way, for my patrons, uh, there's a long story behind this thing that I will get into with my patrons. I'll do a little making of video and I'll bring Joe back and and we'll have a little private video for you guys on that. There's a long history on this and I, and I hope you will find the making of video kind of interesting. But the long and the short of it is, is this is an electronics project with two printed circuit boards that I helped design from an aesthetic standpoint with the dragons on the front and things like that. And if you go to the actual podcast website, which most people don't do, but if you go there, you can actually see the individual custom images for each of these shows. And for this show, you'll see an image that actually shows this, amulet of entropy this electronic badge and of course there's links in the show notes if you i wrote a little blog article about this too with some more pictures and you can check all that out if you really want to see what it looks like but it's a cool little badge with 8 multicolor leds four of which are dragon eyes four of which are gemmed arrows and a round lcd color display in the middle and as you use the buttons on this thing you select your mode it could be a coin flip it could be rolling a a six-sided die it could be pulling a card from a deck and I also added some fun ones of there's a magic eight ball one and there's a tarot card one, too. I wanted to actually add more, but the, <laughs> these things have very limited memory and the images that I had to put on these things took up all the memory. So uh, I wanted to put a roulette wheel on there. I wanted to put a, a, a 20 side to die on there and some other things like that. I just didn't have physical room. But anyway, so you select your mode, let's so say you want to flip a coin, then you push the button and it flips a coin and it shows you either heads or tails. Or if you want to roll a die and you push the button to, to have it roll the die, it, it'll show you the result, you know, a six, a five, a two or whatever. And if you, you know, pick a card, you know, maybe it'll give you the jack of hearts, the ace of spades, whatever. And so what it does is when you first turn it on, it actually goes through all the noise sources that are built into the electronics, the like, like we talked about, the temperature sensor and the motion sensor and whatever, and it, and it pulls the noise off of those sensors and generates a pool of entropy. And once that pool is full, then you can start tapping that pool to get random numbers. And then once that pool is empty, it stops, fills back up again, flashes a bunch of sparkly lights you know, to show that it's full, and then takes you back to let you use that entropy up again. I know, it's very, very geeky, but I had such a fun time doing it. And Joe's been a really great partner. I could not have done this without him. So I will actually also be using this as the basis for some research I'm doing because I submitted a request for paper, a request for presentation to one of the DEF CON villages, which is kind of like an area, a sub area within the DEF CON hacker conference. And I submitted one to the crypto and privacy village about the importance of entropy. So I will actually be using this thing that we built together to do some research and as the basis for how we might generate entropy using electronics so if you are going to defcon i will certainly be wearing my badge and i'll be looking for other people's that might be wearing this as well and, and so maybe you will run into each other at defcon now if some of the things we're talking about today we as joe and i were discussing the things we did as a kid and the kind of the things that got us interested in engineering slash hacking slash tinkering if any of that perked your ears up or stirred up some latent interests in you, check out the links in the show notes. I I talked about those Forrest Mims books. Those were some classic Radio Shack books that talked about some basic electronic circuits. You can still get them today. I put a link to that in the show notes. Also, there's a, a, a company called Humble Bundle, and they put together bundles of PDF books or games or some other things that they sell online for charity purposes, and they get publishers to donate to these things. And they put together these packages of similarly related, you know, all all around certain topics, these bundles of books or games or whatever, and they sell them for really, really cheap prices. And they've got a bundle right now that's actually pretty good about electronic stuff and how you might get started in doing some electronics uh, tinkering. And by the way, they also kind of call this maker stuff. Uh, That's kind of a, a yet another synonym for this tinkerer hacker kind of mindset. And so if, Again, if this interests you at all, and you want to just dabble in it without maybe necessarily going and buying a bunch of stuff like the tools and projects and things, look in your local area, or if you're, you know, if you're not in a big city, maybe the nearest big city, do a search in your area for what are called maker spaces. And these are places that help to educate people about how to kind of tinker and putter around with stuff. And they have all the really cool tools that, so they save you the trouble of having to buy it. And they've got a great space for using those tools. That's what a makerspace is. And they've got classes and all sorts of ways you can learn about this this kind of stuff. So again, if if any of these things we talked about today kind of made you think, oh, wow, that would be kind of fun or that would be kind of interesting. And I hope sincerely that some of you did kind of get that feeling. I would love to think that this may have inspired you. Look at some of these various resources that are put in the show notes or look around for a makerspace and give it a shot. Just put it on your list of things to do to try out and see what you think. Or if you know somebody else that might be interested in that, maybe send this along to them. I really do think there's a lot of value. There's a lot to be learned from a personal experience and just from understanding how things work to play around these kind of things. Obviously, I'm an engineer, so I'm I'm biased, but I'm kind of hoping that maybe I can talk you into looking into this as well. All right. We'll be back to our regular news show next week. I've got several great interviews in the pipeline that I've already talked about. I've got, I've got an interview with Nate Wessler from the ACLU. I've got an interview with Dhanaraj Thakur from uh, Center for Democracy and Technology and also with the founder of CrowdSec. And that's just a little bit of what's on the way. So if you haven't already, subscribe. That way you won't miss a thing. Check out my website, FirewallsDon'tStopDragons.com if you want to look at the blog or the newsletter or my book or just look at my really long list of other cool resources in privacy and security. All right, everybody, that's going to wrap it up this week. Thank you again for bearing with me and listening to me talk about my passion project. I promise you we will get back to normal next week. Until then, stay safe, everybody. And as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge day.